Good evening, everybody. Let's have prayer. Heavenly Father, as we enter into this study tonight, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us, be with us, and lead us, O Lord, as we turn our thoughts to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. As we pick up on chapter 14, I want to review, first off, the highlights of it. If you've got your Bible, you can follow along in it. Basically, John sees a lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 having the Father's name written in their foreheads. And they sang a new song, which no one else could sing. They were virgins of faith, redeemed from the earth, and they would follow the lamb wherever he went. And then the scene changes, and there's three angels, and they give God's last warning messages to the world. That's followed by the identifying mark of God's people. They are those who keep the commandments of God, and they have the faith of Jesus. Faith of Jesus and faith in Jesus, too. And then there was one like the Son of Man who came to harvest and judge the earth. And then the chapter ends up talking about the winepress being trampled outside the city, and it mentions up to 1,600 furlongs. Now, one of the Bibles last week, it mentioned that that was about 200 miles. According to what my Bible says, it says 184 miles. So it depends, you know, the measurements that they used varied from time to time. But this is what my Bible says. When we get into chapter 15, before we get into 15, there's still some things about 14 that we didn't have time to cover in our last discussion. So I just want to touch a few of those tonight as introductory. Fortunately, chapter 15 is shorter, so it gives us a little bit of a leeway there. As we looked at chapter 14, we saw a panorama. As the prophet John watched the unfolding panorama, he saw that prior to the return of Christ, John saw the whole world will have heard God's final message. That's a message of appeal for people to commit their hearts to the Lord. And he saw the everlasting gospel going to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, Revelation 14:6. And it was being proclaimed in the setting of the three angels' messages, and it would go forward with power in the earth. And then our attention is drawn to a great worldwide delusion. Now, this is the part I didn't have a lot of time to really get more into and elaborate on, so I want to do it tonight. The greatest deception of all time is yet to be staged. It's yet in front of us. And this, is, this will take place just before the appearing of our Lord, when Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, deceives the whole world. Those who fail to heed God's message will be ensnared by this delusion, and they will actually believe a lie. Not just a lie, but in the revised version, it says the lie. The lie being that it, it is the culmination of the lie. If you look in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, it talks about that lie. And you can look that up on the side. I'm going to continue with Revelation. Now, Jesus spoke of this delusion when he said that the whole world would be caught in a snare. What is that snare? Well, Luke 21, 35 elaborates on that. It's this deception would be so great that if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived, according to Matthew 24, 24. But they will not be deceived. If it were possible, they would. But they will not be deceived. Why? Because they love the truth, and they have fortified themselves with the word of God. Therefore, they are, with, they are able to withstand the great delusion. 
Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, talks more about this. Now, we know that the devil is even now spreading the veil over the nations, according to Isaiah 25, 7. He's putting a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err, as it says in Isaiah 20, 38. And men are making lies their refuge, Isaiah 28, 17. People are willing to believe a lie. Do you ever stop to think that you can actually talk yourself into believing anything you want to believe? And when you turn away from truth, you will accept a lie. And this is the reason why we need to not only be reading our Bibles, we need to be studying our Bibles so that we will not be led astray. Why? Because Satan himself, it tells us, is transformed into an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11.14 Jim Jones led the people, uh, his congregation, into the woods of, what was it, Guyana, wasn't it? And he led them in there to face death. Why? Because when he turned away from the scriptures... And he said, the problem with you people is you're paying too much attention to this. And he took the Bible and threw it on the ground. Listen to me, he said. And when they turned away from the word of God to the words of men, at that point, they were deceiving themselves. They were willing to believe a lie over the word of God. And in the last days, we're going to find similar things happening. It's the spirit of devils that go forth to the kings of the earth, and to the whole world. Why? To fasten them in deception and to urge them to unite with Satan in his last struggle against the government of heaven. And by these agencies, rulers and subjects alike will be deceived. Many people say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it. It does matter what you believe. It matters a great deal. The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, he believed that he was right when he was persecuting the Christians. When he was persecuting Christ through them, he was persecuting Christ. Why? Because Christ said that he was the Son of God. Well, it turned out that Christ is the Son of God. That made a big difference. And even though he was sincere in his belief, he was sincerely wrong. And it actually cost the lives of people, which was very heavy on Paul's heart from that time forward. And so we find that how Christ comes back again is extremely important that we understand that. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. He will come back looking like Christ, acting like Christ. The church has long professed to look to the Savior's advent as the culmination or the consummation of all their hopes. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come. In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness, resembling the description of the Son of God that's given by John in the book of Revelation. It's interesting that so I, I've had people say, well, I'm just looking for the coming of the Lord and we'll get all the doctrine and all the other things straightened out later. I just want to look forward to the coming of the Son of Man, the Son of God. The thing is, how will you know him when he comes? How do you know that you're not actually looking at Satan? Because Satan comes impersonating the second coming of Christ before the real Jesus comes, according to the scripture. So it's important that we understand that there is a difference because there are some things that the devil is not permitted to counterfeit. The second coming of Christ, he can do parts of it, but he cannot do the second coming of Christ, the way the scripture describes it. Therefore, 
the glory that he shows. I mean, Satan can raise people from the dead, can't he? Well, in the time of King Saul, didn't he supposedly resurrect Samuel? It wasn't really Samuel. It was a spirit imitating Samuel. When Moses was in Egypt, didn't the Egyptian magicians, didn't they duplicate what Moses did with the serpent, you know, the rods turning into serpents? The devil can do miracles. Things that we don't know. How did that ever happen? He can do those kind of things. But the actual second coming of Christ, he cannot. When you look up and you see Christ afar off, coming with all the angels of heaven. Now, people are seeing apparitions of Mary in the sky. Perhaps perhaps he'll appear in the sky. But is that the same as coming from outer space? You see. And so he can change himself into an angel of light, even imitating Christ. But what comes out of his mouth does not support what the scripture says. And as we look at this, this is the reason why it says that if they say he's coming in in, uh, a secret chamber, don't even go out to see him. If he appears on CNN or Fox News, don't even bother watching him on TV. You see, the glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have ever beheld. The shroud of triumph rings out upon the air. Christ has come, Christ has come. The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him. While he lifts up his hands and he pronounces a blessing upon them as Christ blessed his disciples when he was upon the earth. His voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. In gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious, heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. He heals diseases of the people. This is a strong, almost overmastering delusion. The book Great Controversy elaborates greatly on this. But listen to this. But the people of God are not misled. The teachings of this false Christ are not in accordance with scriptures. That's why the scriptures are so important. That's why the scriptures have to be the basis of what we believe. And in the ecumenical movement where they're saying, well, Put aside your scriptural differences and let's just all unite on things we can agree on and we'll all have warm fuzzies. This is skating on thin ice because it's the scriptures that we need to be unified on and not putting them aside. And his blessings are pronounced upon the worshipers of the beast in his image the very class upon whom the Bible declares that God's unmingled wrath shall be poured out. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about the plagues. Only those who have been diligent students of the scripture and who have received the love of the truth. Now notice it doesn't say just the truth, but the love of the truth. The Bible also tells us that there's a class of people who love and believe a lie. They may not commit adultery. They may not be thieves. But they like to associate with people who are, you see. And in their imaginations, they're with them. But here it says those who love the truth. We need to have a love for God and a love for the word of God, which is a transcript of his character. It says, the diligent students of scripture and only have received the love of the truth, they will be shielded from the powerful delusion that takes the world captive. This is the great lie, that Christ has come. When in reality, he hasn't. 
It's a counterfeit who has come. Now what about those who don't believe that lie? They are victorious. These victorious ones will be, by the grace of Christ, they will be keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. When the others are keeping man-made commandments, and they are turning away, yes, Jesus is the Savior, but he's just one of the great masters who have come. When I was, where was I? We were in Cambodia. And uh, what matter of fact, it was Phnom Penh. As we were walking down the streets with my daughter and my wife, we saw a Buddhist monk coming toward us. But he didn't look Cambodian. As a matter of fact, as we got closer, he started to talk to us because he saw we were Americans. He said his name was James, and he was from Detroit, Michigan. And as we talked, he told me that he was a Buddhist monk, and he lived in the monastery, and he pointed to it down beyond the hospital. And then he said, I'm also a Methodist minister. And I said, what? I said, how can you be a Christian Methodist minister and still be a Buddhist monk? Isn't there a contradiction there somewhere? And he said, oh no, I don't see any contradiction at all. He says, Jesus was one of the great masters that has come. And Buddha was one of those great masters too. And they both talked about peace and how we need to love one another and be united. He says, I don't see any, any conflict between Buddhism and Christianity. And I thought to myself, if you believe that, you can believe almost anything. You see, this is why it's so important that we understand the message of Jesus, who he was. Jesus was one of the great masters. Jesus was the only master. Christianity, true Christianity of the scripture, is superior to other religions because there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. He is the door. He is the gate. He is the pearl of great price. And what is the door into the New Jerusalem made of? Pearl, right? Symbolizing that you have to go through Christ to get into the Holy Jerusalem. Now some people will say that's narrow-minded. My friends, that I'm narrow-minded. Because that's what the scripture says. And we can't allegorize it away or any other way. The Victorious ones will, by the grace of Christ, be keeping not just eight or nine, but all ten of the commandments of God. And some have said, well, the commandments of God have been summarized that you love your neighbor, I mean, God with all your heart, your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, but who said that? Well, Jesus said that. Oh, yeah. But look at it carefully. If Jesus were today living on earth, he'd be sued for plagiarism because he's quoting Moses. Moses is the one who said to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And what did he say it? Right after he gave the Ten Commandments. The whole Ten Commandments, the first tablet, the first four commandments deal with our relationship to God and our love for him. And the remainder of the commandments, they have to do with our fellow men. And if we love God, we will keep that first table. If we love our fellow man, we will keep the second table. You see. And boiling it down even further, even if even the two can be boiled down to God is love. Now love isn't God. Don't make that mistake. In the 60s, they made that with the hippies and everything, that love is God. No, God is love. That is the nature of his character. But he has standards. He has things he expects of those. 
And he says, if you love me, this isn't a matter of whether God loves you. It's a matter of whether you love God. And what's the proof of that? That if you love me, if, conditional, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is what the victorious ones are doing. They are keeping the commandments of God and they are trusting in Jesus by faith. This is a message of righteousness by faith. Not of righteousness by works, righteousness by faith. And that faith is displayed in the way they live their lives and keep his commandments. And those who do not love the Lord, they will follow the commandments of God. And it mentions that God's last message climaxes with the tremendous announcement that those who refuse to accept salvation will ultimately drink of the wine of the wrath of God, unmixed with mercy. You know, Christ is what's standing between the judgment of God and us. And when Christ is out of the way, we stand before the glory of the Lord without a shield. No wonder it's a consuming fire to the wicked. As it tells us in Revelation 14, 9 through 11, the word torment now, it said that they would be tormented. Now the word torment in verse 11 of chapter 14, it's an unfortunate translation and it's not sustained by the original. That word torment is not sustained in the original. Some try to say, see, this shows that God stoking you in the fires during that time. But that's not what it really says in the original. The Greek word basinissimos properly means to examine by use of a basinos. What is that? It's a species of stone from Lydia which was applied to metals as it was thought to indicate any alloy which might be mixed with them. Yeah, it's used in metallurgy, but it's one that comes from working with metals. And what does it actually mean? You see, gold, it, when you use gold and you took gold and you struck it with this, it would leave a yellow streak on that touchstone. Today, how do we test for gold? We test for gold by either using an acid or fire. And in Matthew 14, 24, we find that the word it comes from the same word. And what does it mean? It means to be tossed. And the way it's used in Revelation 14, 11, the word means to be tossed like a boat is tossed on the, by the waves during the storm. In Revelation 14, 11, the word torment really means to be tested. The strength of a boat is tested when the storm comes, right? It's beat back and forth by the forces around it. And so that boat in a hurricane is being tormented by the waves, is it not? Its strength is being tested by the waves. And we find that it is being proven by trial. That's really what the word torment means. Now, who will stand? The question comes up. One important thought, often overlooked by certain interpreters, is the fact that this testing takes place not in some faraway place of torture, not in some purgatory, but it says that this testing takes place in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Christ himself, in his presence, these people are tested. What's being tested? Their works, their lives, are they consistent or are they inconsistent? with what God expects of them in his standard. And in verse 10, it tells us that, that it's in the presence of the angels and the, the uh, lamb. So Paul says, 
the fire shall try or prove every man's work of what sort it is. How will, the, how will a man's work be proven? It's by the fires of testing. It's by the fires of, of trial, of the hardships that are taking place. And as we look at 1 Corinthians 3.13, and all righteous and wicked alike will go through the same test before the unfallen universe, it will reveal the reality of God's people. It will tell who is God's people and who are not. We all go through a time of trouble. And by the way, don't ever think you're going to escape the time of trouble. I mean, you may die before the time of trouble at the end of time. But how many people, before they die, they really go through some really testing things that test their faith. Are they willing to give up on God? Or are they willing to cling to God and be faithful? It doesn't have to be necessarily armies coming after you and people with guns and violence. But, you know, when a person is going through a prolonged cancer situation or some other thing that really tests their faith, it has a way of purifying our trust in God. And so we find here this particular uh, experience at the end of time will be a very difficult period, and we will have to depend upon God. It says, who among us shall dwell in the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell in everlasting burnings? Isaiah thirty-three fourteen says that. This revealed, this experience reveals that some will stand the test. But who are they? It's only those who are righteous and upright before God. And so when the Bible says in chapter 14, who will stand? That's a rhetorical question. But that question is answered right within the scripture itself. It's answered that those who are keeping the commandments of God and have faith in and of Jesus, they will be able to stand. And those who do not, they prepare themselves for the consuming fire. Now, just as the three Hebrew worthies were preserved in the burning, fiery furnace in Daniel 3, so will the righteous stand at last in the presence of the Holy God. The God whom the scriptures speak of as a consuming fire. Notice that when the three worthies went through, I mean, came to the burning, fiery furnace, they could have gotten out of that fiery furnace, couldn't they? All they had to say is, oh yeah, old king, uh, you play the music again and I'll bow down and tie my sandals. Nobody will know the difference. I'll be tying my sandals and they'll think I'm bowing down. They could have bowed down to the image, but they didn't. And the king said, well, I'm going to give you a second chance. When you hear the music playing, you bow down and we'll call it even. And basically they said to him in very polite terms, well, your majesty, no offense, but you can toot your horn all you want. We're still not going to bow down to that old image. And what did they receive? They received the wrath of the king. The devil will try to persuade you. He'll try to reason with you. And when he finds you unreasonable, he gets an awful nasty temper. And he starts giving you hard times. How do we stand up in those hard times? Will we buckle? He believes that every man has a price. And if he turns the heat up high enough on us, we will give in to the price and we will bow down to him. 
But Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't bow down. They said, our God can deliver us if he wants to. But whether he does or not, we're still not bowing down. They stood for the right because it was right. Not for what they could get out of it, but because it was right. And this is the kind of people we need in the last days. You know, if there wasn't a heaven to gain, if there wasn't a new earth, if there was not eternal life, would you still serve God? Would you still live the life you're living for him? Even if there was no reward? You say, or are we just doing it for the reward? I mean, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm glad there's a reward. It gives me incentive, you know. But the thing is, would I serve God because I love him? For no other reason. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, notice they were not raptured out of that burning, fiery furnace. They went in it, they went through it, and the devil wanted to destroy them, but Christ went through it with them, and he brought them out a more purified and influential people than when they went in. Daniel, when he stood up, for his diet in chapter 1 against all that the king wanted him to eat. It looked like he was going to be a loser, but it turned out that he was the winner, and those who gave in were the losers. And so we find here that God will be with his people. He will provide for them, and so will the righteous stand at last in the presence of a holy God because they have developed the character of Christ and his name is imprinted and sealed in their foreheads. But those who are not cannot stand before God without a mediator because God's presence is a consuming fire to the wicked. Now, the most beautiful description of our Savior's second advent is found in Revelation 14, 14. He comes surrounded by a cloud of angels, his brow adorned with a golden crown, and he's carrying a sharp sickle. He comes to reap the harvest of the earth. And Jesus, in his parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, and also 37 to 43, he emphasized this reaping and declared that the good seed represented the children of the kingdom. He's coming to reap his people out and the rest that remain are left there to be burned. Another harvest is brought to view in Revelation 14, 18. The harvest of the ripened grapes. Two vines have been growing in the earth. One of heavenly origin, the other of earthly origin or earthy. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and you are the branches, in John 15, 1 and 5. The scripture speaks of evil being destroyed, root and branch, in Malachi 4, 1. The devil and his followers, they comprise that other vine that's mentioned. And when at last the angels of God gather the ripe clusters of grapes, of the grapes of wrath, and cast them into the winepress of God's judgment, terrible indeed will be the vintage. Psalm 75, 8 speaks of that. We find also that it mentions in chapter 14 about a sea of glass mingled with fire. That's really an interesting statement. You know, in ancient Israel, when they were marching through the wilderness, remember I showed you a a picture of the layout of the camp? The tents were on all four sides, according to their tribes. In the middle was the tabernacle. And there was a great space between the tabernacle and the tents of the people. 
That was the great plain area that stands between God and human beings. And in heaven, is this what John is looking at? And in contrast with the scenes of destruction in the closing verses of chapter 14, the next scene that opens to the view of the prophet is one of victory. Those who have witnessed the brilliant spectacle of a tropical sunset at sea have caught a faint idea of the glory that the prophet here attempts to describe. Did you ever see a beautiful sunset, especially over water? I mean, it just sets the water on fire as well. And as the great sun sinks like a ball of blazing fire, the ocean itself seems to break forth into flames of glory. The waves, touched with crimson, transform the whole scene into a mingling of a flood of flame. And so it was with the scene that opened before John, the prophet at Patmos. The scene of glory became more real as he thought of it in retrospect. Picture him returning to his place of rest after a convict's hard day at work in this prison camp. Because Patmos was a prison camp. The island itself was. Suddenly he catches a, a sunset view of glory over the Mediterranean. It becomes to him a beautiful symbol of that great day of realities when the toil of earth is ended and all disappointments are past. And the saints stand at last in the presence of their God. Then, lifting his eyes from the scenes on earth to the scene more wondrous, his thoughts make glorious the the sea of glass mingled with fire on which the redeemed stand at last in victory. The saints are home at last, insignificant indeed, are the trials of earth in comparison with the scenes of splendor. And what do they do? And what would you do as you see this beautiful scene of all these people and you know at last that all has been redeemed? Would that arouse in you a song to sing? And the end of chapter 14 again picks up on that. What marvelous contrasts are found in this book. Apocalyptic writings follow this pattern. Scenes of victory and glory are set over a vivid contrast with the scenes of defeat and destruction. John caught the echo of this mighty anthem as it burst forth from the lips of those who by grace have conquered the power of the enemy. They sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. I don't know if this is the exact words of the song of the Lamb. I guess we'll have to wait and find out. But I like Johnson Oatman Jr.'s song. But when I sing redemption story, they will fold their wings, for angels never felt the joys that our salvation brings. Don't you want to sing that? I want to be in that choir. I'm not the world's greatest singer, but I want to sing that song. And the Lord will provide the voice and the melody to go with it. And so as you end chapter 14, you end it on a high note. When we move into chapter 15 now, it's actually an introduction to chapter 16. And in chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, how many are there? Seven. Huh. When's the last time you remember plagues falling? Egypt. How many were there in Egypt? How many? Ten. All right, seven from ten is what? Okay. No, 
Usually, remember I said in Hebrew poetry, when something's mentioned here and it's mentioned there, those thoughts are connected. In, in, in Egypt, they were plagues that fell on Egypt. They were judgments of God, were they not? And the same thing at the end. But why seven and not ten? Because in Egypt, the first three plagues fell on both the Egyptians and the Israelites. Only the last seven fell on Egyptians. Now here at the end of time, God's people are already proved. They're already tested. He doesn't need to test them again. And so they don't receive those plagues. The, it's What's it mentioned? Just the last seven. Now it's interesting that in Egypt, those plagues that fell, every one of those plagues was attacking the Egyptian religion in one form or another. Frogs they would worship. They would, they would worship the sun god and so forth. So it's attacking their religion, their false religion. But it, those plagues didn't fall on those who were worshiping the true god. And so in these last days, we see that plagues once again fall. And I, by the way, uh, when we talk about the beast and his mark, I want to clarify something I, I didn't adequately bring out last time. And we talk about the mark of the beast. There are those who, we realize that's those who keep false commandments, especially the Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventists do not believe that the mark of the beast has fallen. We do not believe that people today have the mark of the beast. Why? Because the world has not had an opportunity to hear the gospel. In addition to that, we have not yet come to the point where the Constitution falls and we have a national Sunday law. The mark of the beast doesn't come till after that. When they are faced with truth and they have to make a choice. Of course, you know, if you go out and get hit by a truck and get killed on the way home, for you that is the end. And whatever decisions you made now, made now would affect your future, but no, we do not believe that people who are keeping Sunday today have the mark of the beast, because it has not become an issue of the dynamics that the Bible mentions. But when the truth is presented to the world, every man must take a stand on the side of God's commandments or the commandments of men. So I just wanted to point that out lest somebody misunderstand where we're coming from. Anyway, notice what it says in 5.1. I'll repeat it again. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. We'll talk more about that in our next session because we're going to be dealing more with the plagues themselves. Look at verse 15, too. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So these people that we're looking at in here, they're not there now. Because the mark of the beast has not yet become an issue, you see. These are, he's looking beyond that to the end times, the culmination of earth's history. Notice also, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. And so we see here, again, the the song of Moses and the Lamb. 
So 14, 15, and 16 are actually a unit. They're a package together. And as we look at these next time, we'll get more into that. But just and true are your ways, thou king of saints. You are the one who is the king over the believers. And you are the just and true God. That's what the contest is all about. Who shall we worship? Satan wants one thing from us. Worship. And that's the one thing we can't give him. As we bow down before him, as we give in to him, we are acknowledging his control over us. We are a part of his kingdom. And God says, no, I am the king of my faithful ones. 15.4 says, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. Now, all nations will come and worship before you. Well, that means that uh, we're going to go out and convert the whole world and make Christians out of them all. Is that what it says? No. Because we know from what the scripture tells us that it will be a remnant, a small group who will be saved, who will come out. Actually, there'll be a vast multitude that's with that. But nonetheless, in the end times, compared to the population of the earth, it'll be a small group who are truly worshiping God. Then what's it talking about? When it says all nations, it means representatives from all nations. Remember the 144,000? There were 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, so forth. We will find people from all over the world who will worship before him and acknowledge that his way is the only way. Verse 5. And after that, I looked and behold, the tabernacle of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Huh. In plain words, we're looking into the tabernacle, the heavenly temple. And it says that it was opened. By the way, when it says the tabernacle of testimony, when it's referring to the testimony, the Ark of the Covenant is oftentimes referred to as the Ark of Testimony. Why? Because the Ten Commandments are in it. You see, that makes a difference. And the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. They had a a gold belt around their waist and they come out dressed in white linen, the righteousness of Christ. And these angels are coming for a purpose. It appears if they're coming out that it appears that the work in the tabernacle is completed. That people have made their decisions. And in verse 7 it says, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And so remember the four beasts around the throne? Those four beasts represent different aspects of Christ. And he gives to them the bowls that are filled with the wrath of God. And notice in verse 8 it says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of, of the seven angels were fulfilled. No one was allowed to go in there. Now, it's interesting that when the tabernacle was dedicated, smoke filled the tabernacle. And even the high priest had to get out of there. The glory of God filled it. And so we find here that it says, until the seven plagues, or the seven angels with their plagues, have fulfilled their mission. Now, what is their mission? What is it that they are to fulfill? 
What is in the bowl? What are they going to do with it? That's the subject of chapter 16. And so tonight, we have gone from chapter 14 that leads up to chapter 15, which introduces the plague and the bowls. Now in chapter 16, it's going to elaborate more on them. So that is yet before us. We have left the historical part of Revelation. We are now moving into the eschatological or end time. That's all eschatology means is last day things. We are moving into the last day things before the coming of Christ. Now the question is, are the plagues being poured out now? Well, I think we will find when we get into the plagues that you will see that they are not poured out yet. I'm sure there are plagues that we are having. I mean, AIDS is a plague and uh, Zika virus and all these other things. These are plagues, but not the plagues that are mentioned in Scripture because they are poured out after all decisions for good or evil are made. And we have reason to believe that hasn't happened yet. So we're going to move into that prophetic section next time. Okay, I'm going to spare you a quiz. And let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a great God, one who has shown us the future. We don't even profess to understand everything. You alone understand how all these things are going to happen. But Lord, as we get closer and closer to the end times, we will see how they will fulfill. And as we lean upon your word, help us to truly study the word, not just read it, but study it, that we will not be deceived by Satan when he comes impersonating Christ. There are many false prophets and many false Christs on the earth today, but nothing like what's going to be coming. Help us to stand firm, stand fast, that we will truly have the faith of Jesus and keep your commandments, not because we have to, but because we love you. And Lord, we want to be in your presence. Help us to stand for the right, though the heavens fall. We ask it in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.